Welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show live from Regents Field, Ann Arbor's true sports bar at 204 South Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Regents Field also happens to be the home of this podcast. Come on down and check out a future episode taping live on Tuesday nights. I'm your host, ESPN reporter, world traveler, and finally healthy after a few weeks, Michael Rothstein, and welcome to episode 10, except for the episode that we skipped, of the Michael Rothstein Show, a podcast where we discuss the Detroit Lions, the NFL, and whatever else is going on in the world of football and sports. So a little under a week ago, the Lions lost to the Chicago Bears on Thanksgiving. Matt Patricia said he believed his team just needed one win, and then everything would get going after the game. One win would help everything, he said especially after a season where Detroit had led in all 12 games but had lost eight of them. A win would give the Lions the moment they've been waiting for and a chance to maybe get some momentum. So no, listen. Coaches and players won't tank. All you need to do is look at what's happening in Miami right now to know that. They want to win games because for them it's about their jobs, it's about their future, and it's about pride too. So... Asking players and coaches to tank, especially in the NFL, not like the NBA or NHL or even Major League Baseball, is really hard to do, especially because it's such a physical game. Guys get hurt, even in the fourth preseason game, that doesn't really count for much at all, right? So they're never going to tank. But in the grander picture of things, right now for the Lions, who are eliminated from the playoffs with four games left, They shouldn't worry as much about winning games as they should be about evaluating talent for 2020. And that includes young players like Bo Scarborough, Amani Awarie, Jelani Tavai, and backup quarterback David Blau. These are all young players that can use the experience because it would give them much-needed snaps. In Blau's case, it would be an evaluation for whether or not he is the backup quarterback of the future for Matthew Stafford. And that's something the Lions have been looking for Oh, I don't know, for about two years now. If it gets wins, so be it. But if it means losses and a higher draft pick in 2020, along with the possibility of maybe getting up to number two or number three and drafting Ohio State star Chase Young, who is a pass rusher and a position of your greatest need at this point, then that could be a longer-term win for Detroit than any sort of meaningless victory, at least in terms of making the playoffs and the overall standings, will get them this year. Right now, over the final month of the season, the Lions need to be all about the future. Matt Patricia, when I asked him about what he needs to see from younger players over the final month, said he's focused on Minnesota. And realistically, that's the answer he should give and has to give because that's part of being an NFL coach. Matt Patricia's job, at least as far as we know at this point, is not secure for 2020. Neither is his boss, GM Bob Quinn's. They have to try to win games. Plus, it's how they're wired. It's what's in their DNA, and they'll never come out and say, hey, we're not going to try to win a game, because imagine what message that would send to a locker room, a locker room you're still trying to win over with your culture, and it's a culture that was bred on winning. So you can't say that if you're Matt Patricia. But the reality of all this is this. The rest of this season has to be more about the future than anything that's going on in the present. And even if the coaches... And even if the players won't admit to that, and even if the front office, not that Bob Quinn's talking anytime soon, will admit to that, it has to be part of their thinking going forward. And don't be surprised if, as these last four games go along, you start to see more playing time for some of these younger players, including maybe even Austin Bryant, to get an idea of both what they can do in the future and also get them repetitions that will only help them down the road. This week's sit-up straight star of the week is a guy we've already mentioned, and that's quarterback David Blau. He never threw an NFL pass in a regular season game before Thursday. He wasn't even part of the Lions in the preseason as Detroit traded for him at the cutdown deadline. The Lions, listen, even though they saw him play for the Browns, they couldn't have had a real clue of what he could do, and yet the rookie from Purdue was serviceable in his debut against the Bears, and honestly, maybe even more than that. Don't get it twisted now. He's not replacing Matthew Stafford anytime soon, but it's been a merry-go quarterback this year of trying to find a backup for Stafford from Josh Johnson to Tom Savage to David Fales to Connor Cook to Chad Kanoff to... There's been 11 quarterbacks on this roster this season, and that includes Stafford. 
And generally, it's a year where teams will have two, three, maybe four quarterbacks total. So it's been a ton. And that Merigo quarterback has had a lot of riders. Blau, though, might be the one that sticks out in the end, especially if he keeps getting experience for the rest of 2019 as Stafford remains out and continues to show progress because he's young enough and under contract and also cheap enough that he becomes a valuable asset for Detroit if they can have a backup quarterback on a close-to-minimum contract. The slouch of the week will... It'll sound familiar, but it remains the Lions' defense. After the game, Matt Patricia said Mitchell Trubisky is a good player. And truthfully, if you're an NFL starting quarterback, you are, by definition, incredibly good at what you do, whether you're a starter or a backup. You're in the top 1% to 2% in the world of what you are being asked to accomplish. But it's about context. And in context of NFL quarterbacking, Mitchell Trubisky has not been a good player this year. Yet, was anyone at all surprised when Trubisky got the ball down three with 640 left that the Bears were going to score? I wasn't. Not now. Not this season. They got down on the field of mostly four chunk plays and took another decent offensive performance by Detroit and wasted it, eliminating the Lions from playoff contention and turning these last four games of the season into just playing out the string for 2020. We'll be right back after this break with tonight's guests, Lions punter Sam Martin and Vikings reporter for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Ben Gessling. Regents Field, Ann Arbor's true sports bar at 204 South Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Come on by to enjoy some great food, including some gluten-free options, drink specials, and check out free skee-ball and darts as well. You can also record a podcast of your very own here too, just like me. Check out regentsfield.com or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Regentsfield. My first guest tonight was drafted by the Lions in 2013 at Appalachian State, and since then he's punted his way to some of the top seasons in Lions history. Sam Martin, welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show. Hey, Mike. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. So let's start all the way at the beginning. When did you first kick a ball? Uh, first time I kicked the ball was um, sometime in probably 2008, getting ready for uh, senior season, senior year. So it was right before senior year. First game I played was my senior year in high school. Really? So, like, you had never kicked a football before that, right? Like just no, no, just soccer. Yeah, just soccer. And then at that point, so I, I went out and uh, my uh, senior year, I, I kicked field goals and kicked off actually for my high school team. So um, went to went to college as a field goal kicker. Actually, didn't start punting till probably my second year in college. So I want to go back to soccer. Like, when did you start playing soccer then? Like, because like that would be the first ball I'm assuming you've ever kicked. Besides, like you know, being like a six month old running around or year old running around kicking random stuff. Right. Yeah. So I, soccer was like, that was my life. So I played, started, you know, as early as you can pretty much start playing. So I don't know, three or four, I started kicking the ball around. Um, I was definitely a soccer family. So both my sisters played soccer their whole life. Both went on and played college soccer. So uh, we were definitely a soccer family when it, when it came to sports. Were you, were your parents, were your sisters surprised when you went to football then? Like, did they think that, all right, you know, you're going to go, but you, you had sco- soccer scholarships as well, right? If I remember right. correctly. Yeah, yeah, I did have some scholarships, but I'd say, uh, yes, my family and, and my friends were pretty much, you know, people I, I grew up with, uh, meeting with a football route was pretty, it was pretty comical, actually. You know, I was friends with a lot of guys on the football team and those guys, but I was always kind of known as the soccer fairy. So it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I played soccer my whole life. So, so switching to football, you know, the mental football mentality and all that, it was kind of a funny, uh, kind of funny transition, especially now that, that to see where I'm at now with it. It's just, it's funny, you know. Do you remember like what that first practice was like? Were guys looking at you like, what the hell are you doing out here? Like, were you wondering like, what, what am I doing? Dude, I, had, I remember my first, my first practice. I had, uh, I was putting my pads, and my pants all backwards. The guys next to me were laughing. Or, you know, I'd, for, for a couple, I, for a couple, at least a week, I feel like I had I needed help putting pad, my pads on and everything. I didn't know what I was doing. I was totally clueless. And they put me in a black jersey, and I was I was out there, and they wanted me to play some safety. And I was like, oh, I don't know about all this. I should probably just stick to kicking. <laughs> so it was definitely a learning curve. 
It's funny you mentioned that. I've talked to a couple of college basketball players like throughout my career that tried playing football and they were like, I lasted two practices. I got hit once and I was just like, you know, I'm going to go stick with my other sport. Like was, was there a point for you where you were just like, did you get like laid out by accident or like, did you get hit and you're just like, what the? No, I'd say the biggest, um, the biggest shock for me was just culture. You know, I mean, going from like the, the lifestyle of a soccer player and the dynamics of soccer and, and just the the routine of soccer is just so different, um, as you could imagine. You know, all the way from the practices to the schedule and and meetings and everything in between. You know, so that was the biggest thing. And even just one year of high school, when I got to college, it was my freshman year of college is my real first taste of like what football really is. So it was something I had to kind of figure out quick and and kind of adjust my mindset to a completely different mentality than than what I was used to. Was it hard to walk away from soccer, considering, like you said, your family's into it and you had scholarship offers? Like, was that really difficult for you? At the time, it was. It was it wasn't an easy decision, um, but it was. The timing was pretty good because you do, you know, what you hear all the time with a lot of players at sports they play their whole life. You just kind of, kind of get burned out of it. I was playing soccer pretty much year round for a couple different teams, and it was just nonstop my whole life. So. Um, when the, the kicking opportunity presented itself and, you know, I, I, all I heard kind of, all I knew was what I heard and that I had a really strong leg, you know, I didn't really have anything to reference to. So it was kind of a good timing and my mindset with soccer was kind of, you know, reaching a point of, you know, I kind of need a break from this. So it was, it, it was the, the timing was kind of right. And, and obviously it's proven to be a great decision. You know, I, I like soccer. I played a lot of soccer, but, you know, I, don't, I would have never made it. I don't think the level of success that I'd made in football, it was uh, probably a longer shot. So turned out to be the right decision, but do I miss it now? Of course. Like I still juggle a soccer ball every now and then. And it's just a different, like I said, it's just a completely different mentality. So it's, it's, I miss it. Do I regret it? Absolutely not. <laughs> Wait, when you first kick a football, like, I mean, we all see how you kick now. I mean, you're able to pinpoint stuff. You, you beat the crap out of the ball. The first time you kicked a ball, did it go like 15 yards or like is is the kicking motion enough of a similarity that that was pretty seamless? Well, it was really the I, I didn't really have much coaching, so I was pretty much just raw, just, you know, swinging it. I, I had a kicking coach um, who I was fortunate to meet, you know, right around that time who who definitely got me um, the basics I needed with with the soccer fundamentals I kind of already had. So he turned me from like every other kick being a touchback or a nice or a good field goal to, you know, he really fine tuned me uh, to an extent. So, but for the most part, it was just, I'd put the ball on the tee and just, you know, swing away like I was hitting a goal kick or something. And the kickoffs is, kickoffs is probably what kind of got the attention first um, was just hitting touchbacks. And my field goal MO was kind of, I could make deep ones, but I wasn't really sure what direction it was going to go. <laughs> And that, you, I, that reputation continued in college. I was going to say, did that ever get straightened out? Or like, did you at some point just be like, well, all right, I'm going to try the punting thing because this field goal kicking thing ain't, ain't working for me. Well, I went to App State as a freshman and, and was, you know, uh, promised to compete for the field goal job. And I did. I competed with a guy who was uh, going to be a senior and he hadn't played his whole career. And so I went in there was competing with him. And he was actually a very pretty talented kicker. Um, and I came in as a freshman, hitting the weight room, doing everything that I've never done before. And my first, you know, camp in college was pretty bad. And so they redshirted me, and that kid um, ended up being really good kicker that year. He was a redshirt. He was a redshirted guy, so he had a, was coming back the next year. So they told me, hey, you know, he had a great year. If you want to get on the field this year, the punter who was there was graduating. They're like, start, start learning how to punt. So I just saw there's an opportunity. Um, I kept kicking field goals and and going that route. But as soon as I started learning to punt, you know, the next next camp, I stepped in as a starting punter. So it was a quick transition. I didn't have much time to think about it. Um, and then the next year, I kicked some field goals when he left. I kind of was just up and down. I was just kicked when they needed me, kind of. They had someone better to get go in. But I, I slowly turned into more of a pure punter than, than a field goal kicker as my career went on. How do you how do you learn how to punt? Because that's you know kicking field goals, kickoffs. It's the it's the same motion as kicking a soccer ball. Like punting seems like it's a completely different motion. Like is that how learned does that end up having to be? Like were you pretty well, terrible at that at first? Or 
it was kind of yeah it was like kind of a banger bust type thing and the senior who who was there actually was was very technically sound punter so he uh he helped he helped me a lot with the, the basic fundamentals of it but for a while it was you know when i was kicking the ball you kind of didn't didn't know what to expect is it going to be a bomb or you know what what were you going to get there so it took me a while and, and you know my college stats kind of even show that like every year my stats kind of went up went up went up and my senior year i had my, my my best year so it was kind of you know you kind of see the process and like even now you know i go into my rookie year of the nfl it's only that fifth year kicking i watch my rookie film now my technique and stuff is drastically different you know in 2013 than it is now even so it's one of those things where it was always it's always learning really you're always learning and obviously my punting style now is way different than it was even you know five six seven years ago so it's it's just constantly learning so when you get to app state you know what 12 years ago now 10, 11 years ago whatever it was if it's one of those things like do you think any of this is possible i mean because I, I think for people who don't know i wrote this story your rookie year like you were working in a pizza hut your freshman year yeah yeah i worked at pizza hut i held many i wore many hats while i was in college just kind of trying to make ends meet um at D1AA at the time, the scholarship money wasn't huge, and I was only on half scholarship for first three semesters. And so I, I had to get jobs, you know, when we weren't playing in season. Um, so, you know, I always kind of, like I said, I, I kind of only knew what I had heard that I that I had a strong leg. And, and you know, it's, you know, the, uh, the type of leg that can make it the NFL. It was just a matter of, you know, figuring it out, figuring out how to do it, finding the consistency, um, you know just figuring out where I could get better and kind of bring the natural leg speed that I had from playing soccer and, and turn it into a kicking motion. So it was never like, a, I'm, I'm going to do this, but it was always like, uh, just keep doing what you're doing and, and see kind of how it works out. And then every year it kind of became more reality. And then my senior year, it was like, Oh wow, this is, this is happening. So it was, it was always kind of a, a slow and steady type process. What was the weirdest job that you had? Um, I worked on a river, a whitewater rafting river. I worked at a uh, a wedding catering company. So I was setting up and breaking down weddings and serving hors d'oeuvres and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was a waiter at a country club. What else? Yeah, I mean, I, I, Pizza Hut was, you know, right up there. I was making pizzas, you know, so that was, it was pretty interesting. I, was just, I had to work, I, I worked a Super Bowl one time uh, at Pizza Hut, which was crazy. It was extremely busy. I was making pizzas like crazy back there. Wait, so you were working, you were working during the Super Bowl, like, did, and at that point, clearly you don't have any, uh, you don't ever think like, man, like I'm playing in a, I'm going to ever be on a field with guys who played in a Super Bowl or play you know, eventually maybe playing in Super Bowl one day. You're not thinking that at that point, right? Not really. I'm just thinking like, dang it, all my friends are having a Super Bowl party and I want to be there <laughs> eating pizza instead of making it. So, um, <laughs> unfortunately, my boss would let me have off. So I had to uh, I had to bust it out. But uh, it was pretty crazy, I'll tell you. So you make the NFL. What's, what's it like for a punter every week in practice? Because I, I think, you know, at least when I watch practice, you see – you, you see Matt, you see Don, and you guys kind of stretch, and then you're there. Like you're not, you're not going through the drills that offensive guys do, the defensive guys do. What's that like for a punter each week in practice? Well, you know, I try to kind of treat practices like games in a sense. You know, we might only kick once or time, once or twice during the week um, before a game. So I try to do it, go through the warm up with everybody, and then I I go out to my field and. Uh, whether it's the, going the indoor or just the other field, you know, and I get warmed up, I can get ready for a game. And I kind of just maintain my leg throughout practice. And then, you know, we have a punt period. So I got there, hit the punt period, stay loose. I mean, a punt return period, you know. So it's the days we have, you just try to get the most out of them. Um, so, you know, lots of days you see us out there, we're not kicking. We don't, you know, you don't kick obviously every day. So, um, you know, we have our two, two to four periods of practice where we're in there and when we're in there, it's, you know, we gotta we gotta be perfect. So that's that's kind of what what our practice is. You know, fourteen to sixteen periods. We might only have two or four of them, but it's just like a game. You know, some guys get sixty snaps a game. We might get six. So it's all about just 
staying ready, staying loose and, and keep your mind, um, you know, locked in, even when it's hard to, you know, you're not really doing much, but staying focused, staying ready and, and delivering when you have to. It's funny you mentioned that because that kind of led into the next thing I was going to ask you, which is what's it like during games? Because do you, do you do that in practice because you want it to kind of be the same way in games? Like how do you stay engaged in a game because realistically other than kickoffs like when you come on the field generally fans aren't going to be like excited to see you out there yeah i mean i that obviously isn't something that goes through my mind at that moment but you just have to continuously be engaged obviously you know just from the punt aspect um you know a third and 10 can turn to a third and two from you know can change from the minus 40 up to the you know minus 46 and then you're hit a different punt and different direction so you always kind of got to be on your heels, obviously paying attention to the game, the flow of the game and, and being prepared. Cause when you get out there, like I said, you know, we get one shot at it. Um, and, uh, you know, I go out there and do my thing that I'm off the field. So you just got to be ready and, and, and keep your mindset as always, you know, in the game, even when you're not, you know, so there'll be times where I'll go a quarter, two quarters without punting, but there's a lot of third downs in there where I'm on the sidelines ready to go in there. And then we get the first. So, it's just, you know, it's a constant just staying locked in. You know, it's an old cliche, lock in, stay locked in. But that's that's a lot of lot of uh, specialist game is just staying locked in on the sidelines and being ready for when you're called. So, like, do you start, like, warming up, like, on a second down then? Like, do you just do a couple quick practice points, like, when it, between second and third down? If it gets to a third down, like, how does that go per per series? No, it's uh, yeah, I do. I just, you just really just keep my leg loose. Um, I do a lot of drops in the sidelines. I catch a lot of mule snaps, um, and, and mental reps, you know, more than anything. Uh, I keep my leg loose by just swinging on air. I might tap a ball or two into the net, but not, I'm not a big, uh, kick into the net guy. You know, Prater hits a lot of balls into the net throughout the game to keep his leg loose, but mine's more mental and, and, and just swinging my leg on air to keep it loose. Um, and, and really just, and just work on my drop on the sidelines. So, um, typically, yeah, second second down, I'll start looking, you know, seeing where we're at in the field. Okay, if I go out there here, what am I thinking type thing? It's just a, it's a process, and it's always different because, you know, it's the game of football. It's, it's constantly changing. A couple years ago, obviously, you didn't punt for half the season because, you know, you got hurt. How did – did that change you at all mentally? Because that was the first real injury. These punters don't get hurt all that often. Was that, the, that was like the first major injury you had, right? Yes, yeah, so that definitely was uh, the first one, and um, it was you know it's pretty similar to to another, any you know another position getting hurt in that aspect is um, it is kind of what it is, and you know you can't get too down on it. You you you're obviously not happy about it, but you immediately got to switch gears and say, okay, now what? You know, I got to get this better. Um, I got to get back on the field, and it's from from day one, it's it's a it's a mindset of just getting back. So that was. A tough time for sure, but um, you know, you get a time like that, you just, you only have one option, and that's that's to get back. So, yeah. How, how does one deal? How do you deal with that? Just from a mental aspect, because I mean, I've talked to players all the time that being injured gets can really be hard on a guy. Yeah, I'd say um, it definitely isn't easy. Um, it's just it's 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 a matter of juggling, you know, being patient and um, you know balancing out your determination and your patience you know it's you want to get back right away but you know you got a lot of work to do to get to that point and it can get frustrating and and whatnot and especially my circumstances but it was um you just you got one option like i said you don't have a choice you just got to keep your head down and stay positive and get through it and just get better and as quick as you can did you learn anything about yourself from that um yeah i mean it definitely puts a lot of perspective. Um, it's a humbling experience, especially the timing of my injury coming up, you know, the best season of my career and statistically, um, you know, that was tough, uh, with just the expectations of, of my season coming up and, and, you know, being excited and pretty prepared for that season. And so it's, um, you know, it, it definitely humbles you. It sits you down and you've got to be like, okay, you know, you're, you're almost starting over. It's time to you know get back on it. And it's, you know, an uphill battle to get back to where you were. So um, it's definitely, you know, it's not, it's not an ideal situation, but, you know, I just keep getting back to, you can't, you can't let it beat you up. You just got to, one option, let's keep going. 
how long that because I don't think people maybe understand this. You know, they see ACLs, they see linebackers come back, they see whatever. How long does it take a punter to get back? How or how long did it take you to get back to to a form you felt like, all right, I'm back to where I was? Um, well it's you know, it's a constant it's a constant it's a constant um grind to to get to any level really. So it wasn't necessarily I need to get back to where I was, it's just I need to get healthy. I need to get healthy, I gotta get um back to on the field and and trust the process if you will just rely on it rely on what the work you're putting in um to build confidence for what's to come and um that was that was probably the the premise of it so you know i learned a lot um you know and still to this day i mean i'm trying to get better every day so it's it's not like it all of a sudden changes you as a person from like I wasn't doing enough to now I have to do more. You just got to trust what you've always done and, and, and continue the process. So less than a year ago, you went to Abu Dhabi for Special Olympics. As we're talking about things changing you, I know you and I have talked about this in the past. Like how did that experience change you? Because you're working with athletes that, you know, you would never interact with before and probably if not for the NFL and not for a couple of other things, might not have ever interacted with, period. Yeah, I uh, so I, I I started working with um, Special Olympics. First time I worked with Special Olympics actually was back in high school, and then um, did a few things throughout college. So it wasn't, um, you know, obviously the 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 extremity of that production in Abu Dhabi was was first of all like way more than I expected. It was an unbelievable uh, thing they had going on. So that was cool because all the other ones that I've done have just been kind of local um, or regional type ones, and which are obviously amazing. Also, the ones I've been around here too are, have been exceptional. But that out there was just, you know, you really get to see, you know, it's it's a world, you know, it's it's an event that brings people around from all over the world. Um, so it was, I mean, it was extremely moving. It's you know, it's almost hard to even describe. It's something that you you get excited for i was so excited to go out there and be a part of it and then leaving it was just like a whole an experience that's like it's not something you can prepare for or really look forward to it just kind of is so um it was it was just extremely moving and um i definitely look forward to doing it again it was such a cool experience have you already started making inroads on that or is that something even you've kind of maybe taken that because a lot of for people that don't know you work your foundation works a lot with animals and and you have a big passion there, but is that kind of creeped in as a, something you want to work with more? Or? Well, well, the premise of my foundation is actually uh, working with children uh, with physical and mental disabilities. Oh, uh, the cool. animals, yeah, no, no, the animal stuff I do a lot of too, though. You know, my 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 foundation is pretty broad spectrum, but um, you know, a lot of the, the the base of it is exactly you know what the what the Special Olympics um, embraces. So it it actually was you know, right there co- coincided with a lot of the stuff that I do. Um, but it, it definitely, you know, directly with the Special Olympics, I have not done much with my foundation. And I was fortunate on this trip to meet a lot of people that um, and speak with a lot of people about it going forward. So it's definitely, you know, some partnerships and some relationships I made there that, that hopefully can be part of the foundation going forward. So, I mean, you, you mentioned the word relationship. Your Your relationship went pretty public. <laughs> during special olympics uh did that yeah, i'd say so yeah i mean being with with nasia like did that change how you approach your public life because you you've been known but not to that level um yes and yes and no i mean i you know i know nastia as, as nastia you know a lot of people know nastia as a gold medalist gymnast um so it's it's uh no, I mean not really. That's the simple answer is no. No, I mean it's just we have a very normal relationship. Um, you know, other than other than her getting you know recognized a million times more than me in public, that which is pretty <laughs> obvious. Um, it's our relationship is pretty normal. So it's it's nice though because you know she comes from a competitive uh, you know sports background, so she understands a lot of the stuff. You know, the day to day, the grind, the work, the mental side of it, and all that. So. Um, that's that's definitely nice to have. I was gonna say, has that helped you in some ways? Like, because like you said, it's a normal relationship. But she, more than probably, you know, what ninety nine percent of the other people in the world would understand what you go through on a day to day. 
yeah no it's it's definitely nice like she knows like if i didn't have a good day at work you know maybe i had a bad practice or a bad day i'm like she understands it she's not the, you know she just gets it it's not the or on the contrary so yeah i mean she it's there's definitely it's nice having someone who kind of understands more than anything the mental aspect of a high level competition uh, which she clearly does so I got one question off of Twitter when I announced that you were coming on the show and it comes from Brett Casino. He said, you know, seen Matt Prater punt and kick off, but never seen you kick a field goal. And we were talking about that earlier. What's your maximum field goal distance is what he wants to know. Uh, I couldn't tell you now. I mess around. <laughs> I, I, I mess around like maybe in camp and some field goals with Prater and went back to like 55. But I, it goes back to the old. I mean, if I sat and hit, 10 kicks from 60 or 65 i'd probably make it but pretty much like my uh like my college reputation um precedes me i i can kick them kick them pretty far but ain't no telling where they're going so in college i made it i made a 75 yarder with a stiff wind at my back but uh in in a in warm-up of a game so that's i guess you would call my max but i mean prater's leg strength is especially at prater's prime is doesn't get much stronger than that guy so I uh, I don't think I was made to be a kicker, let's put it that way. Does that, I mean, you know, if you're in the NFL, generally your leg strength is going to be pretty pretty darn good. But the fact that you have a guy that has the strength that Prater has on his leg and you, and the strength that you have, does that help you guys in some ways? Uh, or is that me just making something out of absolutely nothing? Um, I wouldn't say, I mean, obviously on the field it helps us if we need a long field goal, Prater's able to, you know, convert. But as far as help each other, um, I wouldn't say that leg strength is as imperative in, in speaking a language as just technique and knowing what you're doing. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I guess there's, there's, you know, yeah, like you said, leg strength in the NFL is pretty much across the board. You know, that's one thing you, you almost need to be in here. Obviously some guys are stronger than others, but uh, for the most part, leg strength is pretty, uh, I'd say consistent. So every guess we have, we end with a, set of like five or so rapid fire questions if you're game all right talk to me let's do it all right best all-time soccer player my best all-time or my favorite best all-time and your favorite we'll go there i'll go uh i'm gonna go ronaldo and my favorite just because it was my era growing up was david beckham big beckham guy growing up What's your best Dom Muehlbach story? Um, he slices a banana 17 times before at breakfast on game day, pretty much as long as I've known him. <laughs> 17 times? Yeah, 17 times. Do you ever ask him why? That's just a Muehlbachism, what he does. <laughs> he's just he's a consistent dude through and through. What's the coolest perk to being an NFL player? camaraderie the locker room 100 uh, percent that's uh i think that's my the coolest part of that to me is just the, the friends and the, and the relationships i've made what's the toughest pizza hut pizza to make um honestly i'm gonna go with the pepperoni here because pizza hut rules you got to cover that whole pepperoni that whole pizza with pepperoni it took a while <laughs> You couldn't really? just throw them on there. You had to cover that thing. <laughs> so it's not like the meat lovers or cheese lovers. It's like no, no. You just throw the stuff on. You just throw it on. But so there were rules to pepperoni. Like, oh yeah, don't yeah, definitely. You got you had to cover all the cheese. With the... <laughs> I, wow. So you've done a bit of traveling and off seasons in the past, even before Abu Dhabi. Like, what's your next spot, and what's your one bucket list spot that you're like, I have to get to in the next five years? Um, I really want to do uh, Australia and New Zealand, um, but those, yeah, I just it's just a big commitment. So eventually, I'd like to get there. Um, I don't have any travel plans as of now. Um, I typically don't make really make my plans until after the season um but new zealand and australia for the next five years for sure why those places i don't know just obvious reasons they're beautiful um pretty much on the other side of the world so it's it's a it'd be a big trip probably three weeks maybe four 
and just kind of hit that whole region um, for more than anything, just, you know, the landscape of it all. Yeah. And I went to Australia. I think we've talked about this. I went to Australia in 15 and you need minimum three weeks just for Australia. If you want yeah. to do it close to right. And then adding New Zealand is probably like another two weeks. They're further apart than you think, man. They're like six hour plane flight. Yeah. It's not close, but yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, that one I'd like to say with the next five years, I don't know. It might be, it might be a trip that uh, I save for post football life. I was going to say, you could just do a punting clinic there, try to make money off of it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, Sam, th- thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you this week. All right, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. Take care. Regents Field, Ann Arbor's true sports bar at 204 South Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Come on by to enjoy some great food, including some gluten-free options, drink specials, and check out free ski ball and darts as well. You can also record a podcast of your very own here too, just like me. Check out regionsfield.com or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at regionsfield. Our next guest tonight works for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He covers all things Vikings there. He's a former colleague of mine at ESPN. He is the great Ben Gessling. Ben, thanks for coming on the Michael Rothstein Show. Happy to be here. So let's start with the obvious question. What's up with Dalvin Cook? Well, he is, uh, he's been very confident in the last 24 hours that he's going to play on Sunday. He said after the game uh, Monday night that, hey, I could have gone back in. It was a precautionary thing. He had gotten hit in the chest, uh, kind of between his chest and his shoulder, probably almost, I, I think, probably near the collarbone, um, in the Broncos game a couple of weeks ago and still was limited by that when they came back from the bye and then got hit kind of in the same spot on um on monday night when he fumbled and then it looked like it was a lot of pain it, initially i think espn's cameras eventually zoomed in and, and showed him sobbing and and he went right to the locker room so it looked like it was going to be awfully bad but after the game he was happy to come talk to us and said yeah i i'm confident i'm gonna be back out there sunday uh yeah sunday against the lions and then uh, could have gone back in and if i needed to so it it sounded like it was more of a pain thing than anything lingering but you know, players quite often are not the greatest uh, evaluators of their own status, and we'll we'll have to see how it develops through the week. But he certainly has said everything in the last 24 hours to suggest that it isn't as bad as it initially had looked. Now, the Lions being what they are right now, losers of eight of the last nine, does Mike Zimmer play it a little bit conservative with Dalvin Cook potentially because of obviously what the Vikings are trying to play for or because of – where things kind of sit in the race, do you think that that doesn't matter? Well, I think there would certainly be logic in doing that, given the fact that you should be able to beat the Lions at home uh, without him, and given the fact that Alexander Madison has played well behind him. But Mike Zimmer is old school enough that there's a lot of times he'll say, if a guy is healthy enough to play, he's going to play. We're not going to sit here and manage for two, three weeks down the road. We're going to deal with what we have coming right now. So and Cook sounded like he wants to go out there and play. I mean, we'll have to see how things develop throughout the week. But I, you know, Zimmer is not the type of guy that that sits here and tries to map everything out over a long stretch of the season. It's more about, hey, if you're healthy enough to go, uh, let's go out there. So I, it will be interesting to see if if they're that uh, bold with him. But it certainly would not be out of Mike Zimmer's uh, typical way of doing things to to put Cook out there on Sunday going from running back to receiver. How's Adam feeling? Well, uh, <laughs> going into last week, it, it seemed like everything was all systems go for him to come back. I mean, that is one that they have been a little more cautious with. They had tried to bring him back for that Kansas city game and he aggravated it early. And I think they got another reminder of the lesson that you thought they would have learned last year with Dalvin cook that don't rush people back from hamstring injuries. And, they had shut it down. I think they felt good about it coming out of the bye, but then they put him out there on Tuesday in a light practice after the bye. Uh, they put him out in probably 30-something degree weather, and, and he aggravated a little bit that day. So he has said, I'm not going back out there until I'm 100%. And I think some of it is when the player is making that kind of a, a stance, th- that that is going to change how you go about it because the player has obviously a say in how all of this goes, as you know. So Thielen – you know, it's going to be interesting to see how they go through the week because 
I would have thought going into last week that he was ready to go, that they, he'd had enough time to let the thing quiet down. But the fact that he aggravated it again on Tuesday and that that limited him the rest of the week certainly makes you think that it could uh, could be another week yet. We'll have to see how the week goes with practice. But that injury, that re-aggravation of it last week certainly uh, was a surprise, and, and we'll see uh, what that means for him going forward. He's a guy that I think – they need pretty badly. I, you've seen it now where they've basically been using Irv Smith, their rookie tight end as their slot receiver. And they do not have a lot of depth behind Stefan Diggs, that group. So that's a guy that as you're going into the playoffs, you definitely want to make sure you have back. So, I mean, that brings up this, which is the last time Detroit saw Minnesota. It seemed like Minnesota was finally starting to really figure things out. Kirk Cousins was insanely good yeah. against the Lions. I mean, yeah. he. I think he's still running play-action nightmares for Paul Pasqualone. I mean, it, it was just brutal. Was that a high point for them at this point? Or are they still playing, even with the injury to Thielen and obviously Cook's been banged up, are they still playing close to that level that they, they kind of, we all been, saw them at? Offensively, they've been close to that. Now, I think the thing that you probably give them more credit for is the fact that they've had to do it without Thielen and for stretches last night, in uh, in Seattle, they had to do it without Dalvin Cook. It was Cousins being able to be resourceful enough to to make some things happen on his own. I I think the thing he's done really well, and you started to see it that day was he started to play faster, and I, I think he's getting through his reads a little quicker, which has allowed him to make some plays downfield and, and get to guys. I, I think the throw to Thielen, if I recall, the the one that he actually ended up getting hurt on, Thielen was coming off the backside of that play, and I think Cousins hit it. Uh, after going through his reads and then hit Thielen um, for the touchdown there, I think Thielen, Thielen was probably like the fourth read. And he, he had another one of those to Stefan Diggs a couple of weeks ago. And as I think about it, it was probably pretty close to the same play in, where those guys were not designed to get the ball in that play, but Cousins was able to work through his progression well enough and find him. He said something a couple of weeks ago that he had a coach in Washington tell him you'll hit that once in a decade where you throw a touchdown to the guy that's the fourth read in your progression. He said, we've hit two of them in the last month. And I, I think those are probably the two he's referring to. So he's played faster. He's been a little bolder. He's not a guy that's going to extend plays forever. So it, it is incumbent upon him to read things well and diagnose them quickly. But he has done a lot more of that and it really has been a lot more impressive than I than any time I've seen him in the in the year and a half that I've covered him. The turnovers haven't been as big of a problem. He seems more decisive and he's just he's playing a little freer and he seems to be uh trusting himself a little bit more. Well, the good thing for him is against the Lions, everybody has time to get to like their third and fourth read. Seriously. I mean yeah, it's not, quarterback not a unit. Quarterback after quarterback has said that this year. Like it's been kind of insane. I mean Listen, they made Mitchell Trubisky look really, really freaking good on Thursday. And Kirk Cousins, I think, is way better than him. That feeling throw, by the way, is still that that pass catch right there, especially with the way they beat Slay and Diggs, like that might be to me the most impressive play I've seen this season. And that's saying something. Yeah. Considering a lot of there's been a lot of nice plays made against the Lions. Yeah, I mean, it's it that throw, I mean, thinking back to it, the way he rolled to his left and then was able to just throw a dart. I mean, he has he has those moments where the arm strength is there, and when he trusts himself to let it rip, you you see him do those things. And and we saw it a couple of weeks late a couple of weeks ago with a throw he hit to Stephon Diggs. And um, you know, the, the the arm strength has never been the question with him. It's does he trust it enough and does he make the right decisions? But the, the way he's playing and the comfort level he seems to have in this offense. It's not like last year where he's dropping back and reading things and, and second-guessing a little bit, saying, oh, I could throw it here, but is this guy really that open? It doesn't seem to be going that way. It seems much more decisive and, and much crisper for him in this offense this year. So flipping it to the quarterback that the Vikings are going to be facing – which is cool, not, by the way. Right. They're not going to know much about David Blau. It's more than likely at this point, David Blau. There's no reason to think Matthew Stafford's coming back at this point, especially since Matt Patricia basically said on Monday that they haven't put Stafford on IR out of respect to, for Stafford and his toughness. And that to me doesn't sound like a player is ready to play anytime soon. Who knows? Maybe we'll be all surprised this week and Matthew Stafford starts practicing, but I don't know why you'd play him at this point. It just so it's going to be a lot of reason to do it. 
I mean, no, other than Stafford's pride. And sure. I mean, and the guy is honestly maybe the toughest player I've ever covered in between college football and the NFL. Like he is extremely tough. I mean, played through broken bones in his back last year. Right. And he was doing it kind of again this year and probably wanted would play if, if he really was allowed to this year. Right. Like, so they're going to get David Blau more than likely instead because Jeff Driscoll's on IR and they're not going to play Kyle Slaughter more than likely. So will the fact that they know very little about this guy matter? Or well, is this a matchup that Daniil Hunter and Everson Griffin are like, oh, this could be fun? Well, I mean, we've seen that with Stafford before where, I mean, I think it was the game at U.S. Bank Stadium last year where they sacked him 10 times. I mean, they've had a couple of those against the Lions where they've had seven or eight sacks. And, and that offensive line has been better. But a lot of the, the days that the Lions have been able to mitigate that pass rush, it's had a lot to do with Stafford getting the ball out. and. They've had some games, I think, in the last couple of years where Stafford's holding the ball a little bit more, trying to make things happen downfield, and that's when they've been able to get after him. But some of the times that he's been able to handle that pressure has been a credit to him diagnosing things and getting rid of the ball quick enough that that pass rush, especially on that turf at U.S. Bank Stadium, can't get to him. I don't know that a guy like David Blau is going to have that luxury where he's going to be reading things quite that fast. I, I don't know that it's going to be something that – I mean, certainly they've had quarterbacks that they haven't seen very much that have beat them, whether it was Josh Allen last year, Matt Moore this year. I mean, they have not been immune to that. But I think what you'll see them do is probably blitz a little bit more. Mike Zimmer has tended to – you usually can kind of see Mike Zimmer's level of respect for a veteran quarterback by how much he blitzes them. The guys that – the Rodgers, the, the Russell Wilson types – Drew Brees, Stafford, even to some extent, he doesn't come after them quite as much. And the guys that are a little bit younger that he thinks he can rattle, he'll bring a little bit more pressure. So I, I think you could see a little bit more of that, but otherwise I think they'll try to do what they do. I mean, they, they've had enough problems on defense this year with guys that you have gotten used to being very good that they have a lot of their own things to worry about. And, and I think that will occupy as much of their attention this week as anything else. So don't expect like engage eight, on that first snap for Blau. <laughs> that never works in Madden. I mean, <laughs> like the thing, well, I guess it does sometimes if you're playing a guy that like doesn't know how to diagnose things quickly and doesn't know where to go with the ball. I mean, sometimes it works, but I feel like engage eight is always a great way to get burned too. Oh no, it, it absolutely is. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. I'm not going to give away my Madden strategies here just on the off chance we play or anyone I play against in Madden is listening, but yeah, engage eight is definitely big, not about them. Not about. He would not be a big engage eight guy. He he he. I it, it would be fascinating, and he's not a video game guy, but it'd be fascinating to to have him sit and watch the way some of the stuff plays on Madden to see if he thinks any of it is realistic or how he perceives it. Because he's such a a scheme and and technique and alignment guy. I mean, he takes those things to be like high science and. I'll bet some of it would drive him nuts that, well, they're close on this, but this doesn't play out quite quite the right way. It, I, it would never happen, and I, I think he'd just scowl through the whole thing. But it would it'd be fascinating to see what he'd think of that. Man, I kind of want to read that story now. I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, make it happen. Well, I mean, Teddy <laughs> Bridgewater used to talk about that all the time, that he would he would put his team's playbooks into Madden or NCAA football and, and use it as a something of a study tool. And, and there's nobody them loves more than Teddy. So if it worked for Teddy, maybe there's something to it. Oh, no, there's no doubt. Josh Johnson, he of half of the NFL, um, what he does every week, and he's you know in the XFL now, so I'm not really sure how it will work for that. But he actually makes his family members be the opponent that he's playing that week, and he'll be the team he's on. <laughs> And he'll play them because it helps him with various things. Like, it, oh, I had like a 20-minute conversation with him about this one day. It was like fascinating. Just like how guys use – guys use Madden. Like, they, they really, really do. They may not always cop to it, but they definitely use Madden to, to kind of help out. And, and Josh Johnson's admitted to being able to use Madden in the past, which is why I feel like I can talk about that. I feel so, like I, I recall Johan Santana, the old uh, Cy Young Award winner with the Twins, used to do this too, where he would – he the, the team he was about to face in his next start, he'd go play them on a video game and, and try to approach them the way that he 
figured he would in the game. So, um, yeah, there's there's something to it, I guess. Oh, technology, man! It's it's unbelievable these days. So the Lions' backup quarterback at the moment is a guy you're familiar with. He's also <laughs> also known as quarterback number ten or eleven that the Lions have signed this year, depending on whether they wanted to bring Joe Callahan onto the practice squad did first. You a, or, did you buy a slaughterhouse T-shirt yet? I, I have not. I did not know those were in existence. Don't give anyone any ideas but i think they're 32 dollars. that seems like a lot of money for a (laughs) t-shirt um what should people know about him other than that they can go and buy a a slaughterhouse t-shirt he is he became something of a folk hero in minnesota i guess uh as much as third quarterbacks do in the preseason when they come in and play everybody else's third and fourth stringers. He, he had a run for a couple of years. The Vikings added him uh, after a really good preseason in Denver, I think in 2017. And they, they pulled him off Denver's practice squad. It gave him a lot of money. They, they liked him and then brought him in. And, and um, he, he really the, – the problem he ran into here was he didn't practice very well. And Mike Zimmer – was not shy about sort of calling that out because he would come out in, the, in games and have these sort of freewheeling fourth quarters and you know, you're playing against somebody else's scrubs and, and you have time to, you know, kind of play backyard football a little bit. And, and he did a lot of that to great effect and had these, you know, these big moments to the point where that became a pretty common discussion point on Twitter. Of, Why doesn't Kyle Slaughter get a chance to play more often? And, and, Everybody would kind of accuse the reporters. I, I think even his dad would come after some of us on Twitter, saying, "You know, you're you're not giving my guy a chance, and you're not. You guys are just protecting cousins, and you don't understand why he's better than Sean Mannion as the backup." It's like, no, his head coach is the one saying that he's not good enough to take that job. So, I I think if they if he ended up in the game, they would it would be very interesting because he sort of had some. Um, some grievances. He had a bit of an airing of grievances at times with, with reporters here and with the way the team handled him. So I'm sure he would love to get his chance to go out there and play. But I also think the Vikings would love their chance to uh, get to hit him in a real game and, and see what he would do in a situation where he's not facing guys who are going to end up either in the XFL or on a practice squad somewhere. Man, now you've given me something else to watch. I mean that <laughs> on Sunday that would be honestly, that would like, be fascinating. Needs some subplots. If he gets in there, uh, I I will tell you this: all of the Vikings beat writers. We have a, a group text that you know, as I think a lot of beat writer groups probably do. We have a group text that gets pretty lively at times. And uh, if he got in the game, there, there's been a lot of Kyle Slaughter chatter through the last few months on there. If, if he got in the game, it would be uh, certainly a subplot we'd all be very interested in watching. Well, I mean, I it sounds like he would be the Kellen Moore equivalent for Detroit because there was a time a few years ago where people wanted Kellen Moore to take Matthew Stafford's job, and obviously that never happened and was never close to happening. Kellen never, you know, aired grievances. Now the offensive coordinator in Dallas, but it yeah, the like very similar thought. scenarios to to what it was. The guy that probably helped the Vikings beat the Cowboys at the end of that game when he was calling those handoffs to, to Zeke Elliott. Uh, the Cowboys had been driving down, throwing the ball all over the place, you know, basically finding Mike Hughes anywhere they could and, and targeting him. Dak Prescott was, you know, just slinging it to Amari Cooper a, a lot. And then they they called a couple of runs at the end of that game that everybody was a little bit perplexed by. But uh, the Vikings stopped him and, and got out. So, yeah, Kellen Moore was, I think, the guy uh, calling the plays down there. So, yeah, it all it all comes full circle. So we end, every get, end with every guest with a rapid-fire segment if you're game. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Best Prince song. Uh, I'm going to go with, and this is a throwback and I, I will say there's a, there's a, a bar in Minneapolis with a lot of people that either recorded or played with Prince at one point or another. There's people that have, have been around Prince in that orbit. Uh, they do a cover of, I want to be your lover, which I think was Prince's first single that turned me out of that song. And, uh, it, it's, it's not one a lot of people know, but I'm going to go with that. What bar is that? Just so I know where I need to go on Saturday. Bunkers, uh, and they play Sunday. It's a it's a band called Doctor Mambo's Combo. And anybody who ever comes to Minneapolis, Sunday or Monday night, they start, they play from ten p.m. to one a.m. It's like seven bucks, 
and it is the best group of musicians I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it, it, people are either, yeah, toured uh, guys that played a new power generation with Prince uh, guys that did albums with him, all, all sorts of stuff. I mean, it, the, the group that plays there, it's basically a house band and they're just unbelievable. So yeah, if you're that after, after the game Sunday night, uh, if you don't have too early of a flight Monday morning, it, it's certainly worth going to check out. It's over in the, uh, in the warehouse district of Minneapolis. Now I know what I'm doing Sunday night. Where okay, so fine. Where do I eat in Minnesota on Saturday night time? Well, it, it's become a bit of a food town. I mean, it, I guess it depends what you're looking for. It, there's there's a lot of. I mean, downtown has its spots. Um, Spoon and Stable is a big one, which is hard to get into. That's expensive too. But uh, th- there's a lot of good neighborhood restaurants up in in Northeast. Um, there's a there's a place called Spitz. It's a Greek place. It's pretty good. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the North Loop that's that's new. It, it kind of just depends what you're looking for. I mean, whether it's there's a lot of kind of high end burger places or um, Butcher and the Boar is very good. That's kind of just a celebration of meat, which is is always fun. But yeah, a lot of a lot of good spots and a lot of different places to go. Um, some new pizza places. Young Joni's very good. That's in the North Loop. I've that's been there a couple times. Love that place. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to get into sometimes, but that's a that's a good one too. So. Um, lots of good spots in Minneapolis. It's a sneaky, good foodie town. What's the Gophers vibe like up there now? Well, it's, we've kind of been on this roller coaster in the last week because it, last, last Saturday, of course, college game day is here for the first time ever. And it's snowing and we have this huge crowd and they're going to beat the Badgers and go to the Rose Bowl for the first time in almost 60 years. And then, um, you know, they get, they get torn apart at home and and that's that i mean they'll, they'll find out this week i think they'll probably end up in the outback bowl or something but um you know it was they had quite the run here i mean pj fleck has has created quite a following with the the row the boat culture as as people in on the western side of michigan probably know and, um yeah it, it's it's been a little bit of a letdown but you know minnesota fans i think are, are used to their teams letting them down in big moments enough that probably nobody was all that surprised transitioning horribly uh how did you meet your wife uh well it's not a horrible transition because it was actually at the university of minnesota we were okay well that that's not terrible then but i was more talking about the disappointment part of it (laughs) um yeah no we we were in the same dorm um at the u of the u of m as people i say that that's what people in minnesota call it people in michigan will laugh at that and people certainly from the university of miami will laugh at that but we were uh in the same dorm at Minnesota and we were uh, I think in a Bible study together in that dorm and, and met there. And I, I think she'd actually seen me a couple of weeks earlier and we hadn't met yet, but uh, saw her there. And I was like, Oh, that's somebody I'd like to get to know better. And so we started dating when we were sophomores at college and just kind of went from there. Cool. Uh, best NFL stadium. I am partial to Lambeau field. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like that trip, but the, the thing I always sort of say is, you know, it, it's unique. It, it feels like a college stadium. The, the whole environment there is different. I, so that's number one on my list. I actually would put CenturyLink field probably number two. I, I think that's always a fun place to cover a game. And it's always just fun to see the environment that fan base is, is as rabid as there is right now. I actually like us bank stadium an awful lot too. I, I think it's an enjoyable place to watch a game. And, um, you know, I, those probably would be my top three. I, Ford Field, I I, I like. I, I wouldn't put it quite as high, but yeah, I would probably say Lambeau, U.S. Bank Stadium, and, and CenturyLink Field in some order. No, I agree with you totally on the link, and I actually like U.S. Bank a lot. For me, though, man, it's it's still Jerry World. That place is insane. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just the spectacle of it. We were down there a few weeks ago for that Sunday night game, and the, the spectacle of it is is fun. And and I think it's probably the only place left where you can get beer in the press box. They do have that. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't drink, so I can't, I don't partake in, I don't drink beer. Well, I don't drink period. Also can't drink beer because of gluten, but gluten. yeah, people are pretty excited about the beer in the press box. Yeah. And, I mean, it's yeah. One of those old school Jerry touches, I guess. And, and they've got the, like the, the cab drivers that'll take you back to your hotel. And, you know, so it's, it's a little bit of a old fashioned, you know, boys network kind of thing, I, I suppose. But uh, yeah, if, if they've got a tap going, I, I think a couple of our, writers were uh were partaking in that after that sunday night game but uh yeah it's uh you don't see that very often anymore i think it used to be something that you can get anywhere but i think it's the only place now we ever see it 
And lastly, because we were joking about this off air a little bit. So how do you manage a Minneapolis winter? How do you manage a Minneapolis winter? Well, uh, you start with the knowledge that when you think it's over, it's not. It's it's sort of like, you know, one of those horror movies where you think the guy's dead and he pops back up two or three different times because of the sequel. That's that's like March and April here. You You basically figure about March 10th is there there's still probably five or six weeks left that you can get snow. And it, we've seen more of that in recent years, it seems like. And there's kind of the, the, the state hockey tournament, which is a huge deal here is like the second week of March. And there's always a snowstorm that hits at that point. So you, you sort of assume you're in for it for four or five months, but you, you have to have the big coat with the Gore-Tex. Um, you have to have a, a set of jumper cables in your car. You have to have, stuff to scrape off your car. I mean, all of those basic survival things. I mean, it, it sounds facetious, but <laughs> it gets cold enough at times that if you don't have that stuff. You can find yourself in a lot of trouble, but so you, you get those things and then you kind of just find ways to make it fun. I, people like to be outside and do crazy things like playing hockey when it's five below and um, snowmobiling, ice fishing, all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, I'm the I'm the crazy guy that will go run outside when it's five or ten below. You just put layers of stuff on and put the the yak tracks on your feet. So, I mean, it, it's that that hearty Minnesota culture of hey, it, this is miserable, so we might as well find a way to enjoy it. It's it's really all you can do. I I think that part of it of living here, at least for the first part of the winter, is fun because people are into it. Now, when it gets to be March and April and everything's dirty and wet, there's more snow. It's like all right, come on. But the first part of it, at least, is a good time. Well, hopefully we see none of that this weekend when Detroit comes up to Minnesota. You can have it once I leave on Monday. Take it. I think the single day. Take it. Just take it. I saw below zero temps uh, at least at night a couple days after you're here. So uh, I think you'll get out just in time before the really nasty stuff gets started. Well, I can only hope. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you Sunday. All right, dude. See you Sunday. Regents Field, Ann Arbor's true sports bar at 204 South Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Come on by to enjoy some great food, including some gluten-free options, drink specials, and check out free skee-ball and darts as well. You can also record a podcast of your very own here too, just like me. Check out regentsfield.com or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Regents Field. For the last segment of each show, we take questions from you, the listener, to try and help give some answers to what's been going on with the Lions this season or really anything else you want to talk about. To ask a future question, use the hashtag RothShow on Twitter or email me at Michael Rothstein, the letter D and the letter M at gmail.com. Ken Bryson from Twitter asks, the whole Quandre Diggs thing really bothers me. I think he has taken the high road saying, quote unquote, it will all come out. But I think it's basically there are issues with acceptance of the culture they're trying to build. Is that a fair statement in your observation? Ken, that's a really good question. And it's frankly one of the questions of the Matt Patricia regime just so far. There's no doubt that this was accurate in 2018. The culture clash between the last regime and the current one was stark in almost every manner. And as we all saw, it didn't go well. I would say there's less issue with acceptance this season, in part of because who was cycled in and who was cycled out as the Lions turned their roster over from 2018 to 2019. It's not a coincidence that many of the free agents the Lions signed have familiarity with New England, like Trey Flowers and Danny Amendola and Justin Coleman. So that's helped. I've definitely heard less overall grumbling this season, but it's been there in bits and pieces, especially since Detroit isn't winning, and make no mistake about it, the players are worked hard throughout each week. I don't believe there to be the level of discontent there was last season because if it existed, it would have been out there publicly by this point, especially with the Lions losing eight of their last nine games. But it's clear, too, that the losing is not helping matters when it comes to trying to build the culture that Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn want. As we all know, winning cures a lot. The question now is whether or not Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia are going to get a third year in 2020 to keep building that culture and getting the types of players they want in Detroit to be in Detroit. Kel Schneider asks by email, with Ron Rivera being released by the Panthers today and his defensive dominance in the past, 
is it possible the Lions could replace Paul Pasqualoni with him in the offseason? Kale, it's an interesting scenario, but let's start with this. I'm not sure Ron Rivera won't end up as a head coach somewhere else at some point in the next two months. The 57-year-old has won three division titles, reached a Super Bowl with the Panthers, had four playoff appearances in eight seasons, and owns a career record of 76-63-1. To me, he could be a head coaching candidate that's really attractive in a lot of places, frankly, including Detroit if the club moves on from Matt Patricia after this season. If he chooses to get into coaching in 2020 and doesn't land a head coaching job, he'd be an extremely attractive defensive coordinator candidate, and that's maybe where the rub would come in even more for Detroit. This defense, as long as Matt Patricia is here, is going to be in Patricia's style, and he's likely always going to have some control over it. Never mind the fact that Paul Pasqualoni is his mentor, and it's going to be a tough move to move away from Pasqualoni if he has to at the end of the season. And there's no guarantee that that's happening at this point either. But would Rivera want to come into this type of situation or one where he would have more control? If you were interested, however, and the Lions do move on from Paul Pasqualoni, then he'd be an early call to me. He's run a 4-3 defense and a 3-4 in the past, so he has familiarity with both types of fronts that Patricia would want to run. If he's available and he's interested, he's a quick call, but I'm not sure that it'll happen for the Lions or for Patricia. I think Ron Rivera will have many options this offseason, possibly including a couple head coaching ones. And even if he doesn't, he might have a couple of coordinator options that would be more attractive than the Lions. You can read my reporting guest tonight, Ben Gessling, at the Minneapolis Star Tribune and follow him on Twitter at Gessling. That's G-O-E-S-S-L-I-N-G. S-Trib. You can follow Sam Martin on Twitter and Instagram at Sam Martin underscore six. You can read me at ESPN.com and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein and on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist. Also, you can check out my hopefully soon to be updated once again travel blog on michaelrothstein.net and once the nfl season ends we're going to update that way more frequently thanks to regents field as always for hosting this podcast and to my producers steven arkinall matt leach and david woodley my designer samantha holt and all of you for listening episode 10 except for the one we skipped is done thanks for listening and since we've been around for a couple months now let us know how we're doing rate review subscribe let us know what you'd like to hear about and who you'd like to hear from. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you choose to listen to your podcasts. Love your feedback as we continue to grow this show. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>